Nine Stories UK here. This is Performance Part 2. This is the David Litvinoff podcast. And we're on Series 3, Episode 3. Well, this podcast is an attempt to capture the spirit of an age in London from the late 1950s to the late 1960s. This is when London was recovering from the war. New people were moving into the capital, changing its personality and nature. The first steps to becoming the world city that it seems to be now. This is a bit of a ramble, but I hope everything will come into focus. I've named this podcast the David Litvinoff podcast, but it includes many others. Litvinoff remains something of a mystery figure to pin down. It was said that Litvinoff was physically ugly, but he could talk the birds out of the trees, money out of pockets, boys into bed, and gangsters out of killing him. Gangsters such as the Craze, who feature heavily in this podcast. Litvinoff was born in 1928 in the Jewish part of Whitechapel, in the East End of London. He was then David Levy, but he changed his name when he was aged 17 to Litvinoff as it sounded more interesting and it was the name of his stepfather. As a child he was difficult, doing anything for a bit of excitement, the war being the perfect excuse for him to do as he wanted, as the bombers made much of London rubble the ever-present threat of death providing sexual liberation for many Londoners, the social hierarchy was breaking down, and Litvinoff was taking full advantage of changing circumstances. Litvinoff was evacuated at the start of the war with his brothers to the, homes, uh, for the, to the home of people who proved to be paedophiles. He and his brothers ran away and walked back to London. This gave Litvinoff the chance to start his apprenticeship in being street savvy. He would walk around London, meeting strangers, befriending them and learning from them. London was a grim place after the war, but Litvinoff uh, ducked and dived, picking up work where he could. He took a wide variety of work, being a waiter at the Lion's Corner House, a journalist for the Jewish Standard. It was an age when you didn't necessarily need qualifications to land a job. Litvinoff became to know criminals and gangsters in the area that he lived. Jack Spotcomer being an influential Jew from the area known to Litvinoff. But he grew up with others such as the Craze. Litvinoff did his national service for two years as a clerical worker for the RAF which helped him to detach from the East End and help him to reinvent himself as someone with no history. He didn't want any record of himself and he tore up all of, the, all of his identification papers when he finished his national service and practiced his accent to speak received pronunciation, so making it difficult to know his background. By the early 1950s, Litvinoff had moved back to London and discovered jazz clubs. He moved into a flat at Paddington and a little later a houseboat at Chelsea Reach. This is when he started to mix with the Chelsea crowd, the artists, the writers, musicians who were attracted to the Chelsea area. 
a group of people began to form as Litvinov began to mix with a group who thought that they were like the bright young things, the flappers, dancing the Charleston after World War I in the 1920s. But these were the bright young things from the 1950s after World War II. The group liked jazz, surrealism, and Litvinov was a character who fitted in well with the bohemian young set of the 1950s Chelsea, artists such as Timothy Whitbourne and Donald Camel, jazz musicians such as George Melly, and others in the so-called beautiful and well-connected Chelsea set, including Augustus John and Tony Armstrong Jones, all became known to each other. The group continued to grow and evolve until interconnections linked the associated worlds of fashion, art, design, mysticism. So that by 1960, Chelsea had been colonised by a small army of rich bohemians, for who running a shop, or the right sort of shop, a boutique, was a perfectly acceptable occupation. And a new generation of retailers, arty types who designed their premises, and the groovy dressers who patronised them, were overwhelmingly posh and a tightly interlaced in a powerful daisy chain. Litvinov was an eccentric member of the group, who was known to steal and act in a bizarre fashion. Litvinov, a homosexual, was completely out of the closet at a time when it was very much illegal. He wasn't effeminate in any way, but he didn't know, he didn't care who knew he was gay. Litvinov would go into a cafe on the King's Road, greeting any public schoolboy types that may be there with a jovial, Hello, I am David Litvinov. I am Jewish and homosexual. Challenging their conceptions. Another time Litvinov dyed all his shirts pink in the bathtub, then climbed in and dyed himself pink, going to a restaurant, ordering his dinner in reverse. George Melly described Litvinov as a Dadaist rather than a Surrealist, creating situations. Melly grew very fond of his lunacy, as did a lot of other people, but he was also hated by some. In 1954, the artist Lucien Freud was in Esmeralda's Barn, a fashionable nightclub in Knightsbridge, when he discovered that Litvinov had been impersonating him to run up bar bills. They were both Jewish and resembled each other, which allowed Litvinov to pretend to be Freud and run up bar bills in his name in the clubs and bars of Soho and Chelsea. Lucien Freud could be a dangerous person to cross, but he was fascinated by Litvinov and invited him to sit for him to paint him. It was said that they were friends, but in truth they were too similar in many respects, and Freud grew to detest Litvinov. Freud was reported to have said that Litvinov was perhaps the most revolting person that he knew, a repulsive and horrible man. The portrait produced by Freud was only 13 inches by 9 inches, but it caused some problems between them. It was called a self-portrait by proxy by Freud. It was sold at Christie's auction house for well over a million pounds in 1999. It was known then as Man in a Headscarf. It had been known as the, the uh, Procura. Eccentric behaviour was encouraged by the Chelsea set. Parties would be raucous, 
and generally disrespectful. Consider George Melly's behaviour at a party. Melly would leave a room and return naked, posing with flexed muscles, saying, I'm a man. Then he would leave the room and mince back in with his genitals hidden tucked between his legs, saying, I am a lovely woman. Then he would drop to the floor and bark and growl and say, I am a bulldog. By the mid-1950s, Litvinov was friendly with Andy Garnett and they specialised in organising drunken parties for their Chelsea set friends. It was on one of their drug foraging sessions that they came across an all-night club called Al Capone's at Swedenberg Square, now replaced by Swedenberg Gardens and a housing estate. The club was about to close, so Litvinov, Garnet and others decided to create a new venue for London and shake up people's ideas of what a club should be. They wanted to invite different types, different nationalities. They redecorated the club in vivid colours and bold images and they hired, hired a Caribbean band and cooked Caribbean food. Guests would have to bring their own drinks. The opening night was on the 12th of May 1956 and it was for those that lived in the West End and Chelsea, the rich Chelsea set, as well as the locals. The locals were the, the black people who lived in the area where Litvinov sourced his drugs. The club was a great success and provided the press with stories about Mayfair slumming it in Dockland. Debutants amongst the dustbins with photos of drunken Debs. Questions were asked in the House of Commons asking what action was being taken by the police. Respectable folk were outraged but it marked an event which saw a mixing of social groups which has become more and more common amongst the young set. Many of the Chelsea set were dabbling in the media in various forms. Litvinov started to contribute to the Daily Express's William Hickey uh, column, which was basically a gossip amongst celebrities. Litvinov started to exploit his friendships in search of stories, which he could make copy with. Litvinov exploited his press card to gain free entry to all the events taking place in London, with a promise of a review which never seemed to make print. Litvinov was networking, or whatever the equivalent phrase was back then. He was also making contacts, contacts amongst the members of the establishment who were homosexual politicians such as Tom Dryberg and Lord Boothby, who were both corrupt characters. Being homosexual in London at this time was like being in some sort of a secret society, which Litvinov exploited as he did with his Jewishness. It was said that he would go up to people in the street singing a rhyme. I'm a Jew, are you one too? The craze attracted these corrupting elements of society and they worked with each other. I just mentioned Dryberg and Bo uh, Boothby. Let's consider Tom Dryberg, a Labour politician. He was also a journalist and, like Litvinov, was writing for the Daily Express's William Hickey gossip column. Also like Litvinov, he was an open homosexual and a friend of the Cray twins and a lover of a Cray associate, the thug Teddy Smith, also known as Mad Teddy Smith. Dryberg's employer was the, uh, the press magnate Lord Beaverbrook, 
who, along with others, used his influence to keep Dryberg's name out of the newspapers when involved in hedonistic illegal behaviour. It was a time when it certainly was one law for the rich and powerful and one law for everybody else. Dryberg was almost certainly a Soviet spy. He was recruited while toilet trading, but a deal with an MI5 connection secured Dryberg lifetime immunity from prosecution. There were many scrapes that Dryberg found himself in, which never came to court, or if they did they were never reported in the press. There were allegations that he was a child abuser, a paedophile from the 1960s, but no charges were ever pressed against him after the Director of Public Prosecution, Norman Skelhorn, had been advised that proceeding with the case would not have been in the public interest. During the same time, Conservative MPs reported their chief whip that Dryberg and Lord Boothby, a Conservative peer, had been importuning males at a dog track and were involved with a gang of thugs. At parties which Dryberg and Boothby attended at the Cray's flat, rough but compliant East End lads were made available for their amusement. While Dryberg avoided publicity, Boothby was hounded by the press and was forced to issue a series of denials. After the craze had been convicted of murder in 1969, Dryberg frequently lobbied the Home Office on their behalf. Politician Robert Boothby was a secretary for Winston Churchill at one stage of his parliamentary career. Churchill saying about Boothby that his sort gives sodomy a bad name. Boothby was bisexual, although he seemed to prefer men. He didn't have a relationship with a woman until he was 25. In 1962, Boothby began an affair with a much younger man, Leslie Holt, who he met at a boxing competition. Holt was a boxer and an associate of the craze, to who he was soon introduced. Holt also had a job as a scroopier in a casino in the West End. He bought nice cars, which he kept two large Dobermans in the back, and he formed a close relationship with Boothby. Holt slowly mixing with the aristocracy, all the while secretly robbing them and becoming, he was a cat burglar, and becoming a glamorous and swamp, somewhat flamboyant young man. Holt became a frequent visitor to Boothby's flat in Eaton Square. Holt had a flat at Cedra Court, Casinov Road in Stoke Newington, and by 1963, the handsome Art Deco apartment building had Ronnie, uh, Ronnie Cray had a flat there for his homosexual orgies. Ronnie Cray supplied Boothby with young men and arranged orgies which they both he and Tom Dryberg attended. The Crays received favours from Boothby in return. It's almost certain that Litvinov would have been a guest at some of these parties. Boothby liked slumming it in the East End of London, often spending time at the Regency Club, which paid protection to the craze, but was considered a neutral ground for London gangsters. The club was a favourite with the celebrities who liked to mix with the craze and other gangsters. Princess Margaret would be seen at the club. Princess Margaret, of course, making most of these podcasts in one form or another. 
It was common knowledge among journalists that Boothby and Dryberg were friendly with gangsters and having rough trade. But no one reported it until 1964, when the Sunday Mirror exposed the corruption. Boothby denied the story and threatened to sue the Mirror. As Boothby was a Conservative and Dryberg a Labour, both major political parties wanted to hide the story and pressure was put on the Sunday Mirror, who sacked their editor and paid Boothby heavy damages. After this episode, other newspapers became reluctant to print stories about corrupt politicians and also reluctant to print stories about the craze activities. In any way, any journalists reporting on them were roughed up, were subjected to legal threats and had their homes broken into. All this gave the craze a feeling of invincibility. It made them feel they could do whatever they wanted. Litvinov blackmailed homosexuals by threatening to expose them in his newspaper column and manipulated those that he reported on exchanging information for other stories or just making up stories by twisting truths and events. On the 25th of March 1958, the William Hickey column reported on a row over a picture in the latest Lucien Freud exhibition. It's said that the picture is of David Litvinoff, one of the Chelsea set, and it was renamed the Procurer by Freud. Litvinoff has taken exception to the new title and has decided to contact his solicitor. It was probably Litvinoff reporting on himself and trying to make a story, but it was the start of a, f- a feud that he had with Freud. Litvinoff did not sue, but he stole a taxidermy zebra head that was owned by Freud. At this time, Freud's life was a little wild. He was just divorced. Some friends thought he may have been suicidal. He was always getting into fights. Freud called the portrait of Litvinoff the Procurer, or he renamed it the Procurer, because he felt that Litvinoff pimped out girls and boys, which was probably true. Litvinoff had started an agency which specialised in two types of work, labouring on, on sites and film extra roles for handsome young actors. If a young man came for an acting job, there would be no film work for him at that time, so it was suggested that in the meantime he could do labouring work. However, the film work never ever seemed to materialise. Litvinoff uh, would make things happen in order to get a story. For example, he would gather a group of debutants and put them on the underground with a table and glasses of champagne in a carriage and then take photographs and inform readers the next day about riotous parties on the circle line by drunken Debs. There's always been a strong criminal element in the West End of London. The two main gangs in the early 1950s were those of Billy Hill and of Jack Spot Comer, so-called because he claimed to be always beyond the spot when there was trouble, but the real reason was he had a large mole on his face. But a new gang was making their presence felt, the craze. The twins were five years younger than Litvinoff, but they took on their first West End business in 1956, a drinking club called Stragglers. It was owned by a friend of theirs called Billy Jones. 
There had been trouble in the craze, in effect, took over the door, which they started to do with other clubs and pubs that had a problem with fighting. It was a form of protection where the establishments themselves asked for the protection. Sometimes just the knowledge that the craze used the pub would be enough to make sure there was no trouble. East End people did not trust the police and would rather have a local hard man sorting out their problems for them than the law. There was a number of law changes opening up new possibilities for criminals. The 1956 Rent Act, the 1959 Street Offences Act, that's prostitution, and the 1960s Betting and Gaming Act. The 1957 Rent Act removed controls on rents, enabling landlords to charge higher amounts to new tenants, often forcing the old tenants out. Litvinov did some work for Perrick, or Peter Rackman, who bought up properties in London, forcing out the old tenants, subdividing, sub, subdividing properties to, new, uh, to let to new tenants, and making huge profits. It's not known what Litvinov's role was apart from rent collecting, but he was almost certainly an enforcer for Rackman. Rackman bought up 80 large Victorian terraced houses around Notting Hill. One of these was the film set for the film performance. He bought these 80 large Victorian terraced houses for £80,000. Today, just a two-bedroom flat in a four or five-storey building there could sell for two million. Amongst the other Rackman enforcers was Michael de Freitas, a Trinidadian who came to the UK in 1957 and who lived in a basement flat at Power Square which was used as a gambling den, Power Square, where performance was filmed. De Freitas later converted to Islam and then became a campaigner for black civil rights. De Freitas was a sadistic bully who was also a pimp and he became the first non-white person to serve time under the 1967 race relations law when he argued that any white man should be immediately killed for laying hands on a black woman. De Freitas or Michael X, as he became known, was part of the hippie counterculture movement. But he was destined for trouble, despite help being financially helped by John Lennon. He fled to Trinidad and started a hippie agricultural co uh, commune, but later started killing its members. Gail Benson was the daughter of Conservative MP Leonard Plug. Leonard Plug owned a house used as an illegal gambling club at 15 Lowndes Square, which was the last remaining private residence in the square, all the other houses being turned into flats. It was 15 Lowndes Square which was used for filming the interior scenes for the film performance. Anyhow, Gail Benson was a member of the, Tr uh, the Trinidad Agricultural Hippie Commune. She was a partner of one of De Freitas' associates, Arnold Donaldson, Arnold, I beg your pardon, Alan Donaldson, who was also a commune member. On the morning of the 2nd of January 1972, a group of men led by De Freitas took Benson for a walk outside the commune. Arriving at a hole in the ground, they started digging until it was about four feet deep. One of the men turned to Benson and asked, What do you think this is for? She shrugged, and the man replied, 
This is a fresh hold for decomposed bodies. They pushed her in, and two of the men attacked her with a cutlass, badly wounding Benson in the chest and throat. She was buried alive, some of the men jumping on the soil to keep her down until she succumbed. The post-mortem later found inhaled dirt in her lungs. It was alleged that Michael X had ordered her death because she was causing mental strain on a commune member. Her badly decomposed body was found seven weeks later and eventually two of the men were convicted of her murder after one of the group turned witness for the prosecution. Michael X was charged with Benson's murder but was never tried. He was sentenced to death for the murder of another commune member killed in similar circumstances a few months later. It seems that De Freitas, or Michael X's MO, was to dig a hole, push his victim in after hacking at them with a cutlass, and then bury them alive. He was hung in 1975, but he is again in next week's podcast, Michael X, when he was thought to have compromising photographs of Princess Margaret as a blackmail uh, rouse. Anyhow, we'll find out about that next week. Litvinov found a number of markets and loopholes to exploit relating to the 1959 Street Offences Act, which was a crackdown on street prostitution, in effect forcing it inside, behind closed doors. Litvinov was working in a striptease club and clip joints in Soho. Prostitutes were now renting rooms in the Soho area, advertising French lessons, no longer being on the street looking for custom. These clip joints consisted of just a single room. They began membership schemes to entice unwary males to join them with a promise of sex without commitment. These were known as near beer joints, as they could only sell drinks with a minimal alcohol content. Litvinov worked at a club called Midnight Follies near Piccadilly Circus. Passing men were lured in, usually by a seductive woman. When entering, the men would be asked to pay a membership fee. When in the club, the male would be forced to buy a cocktail made up of a disgusting mixture of drinks such as Coca-Cola or fruit juice at an extortionate price. The girls were generally aged around 18 to 20, and they were paid by the amount of cocktail sticks they collected from their punters' glasses at the end of the night, so they cajoled their men to buy more and more cocktails. The girls got rid of their punters by suggesting they met outside the club at an arranged place, but of course the girl would not show up. Sometimes the men would come back to the club looking for the girl, or looking for his money back, and this is where Litvinov's role came into play, as he would threaten them off, sometimes impersonating a police officer. Litvinov regularly took amphetamine and never seemed to sleep. He walked and talked fast and he was very, very energetic. Attending the jazz clubs and the newly emerging rock and roll clubs, he seemed to know everybody and attended the drinking and gambling clubs in the Soho area, of which there were many. Among Litvinov's talents was his ability to place people's accents, which made people think that he could read their minds. Litvinov was an expert on local dialect in London, which could vary subtly from street to street. Also the use of slang, nicknames and similar idiosyncrasies. 
Litvinov was able to place a person in an area back in a time when people generally stayed living in the area of their extended family and local community. Another of his skills was shoplifting. He knew the secret language of the shoplifters and his friends remembered him bringing gifts that he'd just stolen. Some of Litvinov's friends suspected that he suffered with depression at times. He would often disappear, then come back and be full of energy and ideas and then would disappear again. Some suspecting there was a chemical imbalance in the brain and that today he would be diagnosed bipolar. The 1960s Betty and Gaming Act allowed gambling for small sums of games of skill. This law giving a perfect opportunity for exploitation. This was another money-making opportunity for Litvinov. Illegal clubs were proliferating around Chelsea and Belgravia, run by people such as John Aspinall, who with a combination of guile and bribery managed to escape prosecution. The amount that changed hands at such games were huge, the equivalent today of £25,000 a hand, each hand lasting less than a minute. Fortunes were won and lost in minutes. Waiters in white tie and towels would serve the guests champagne and caviar. The aristocracy, the very wealthy, and criminal kingpins played the tables. Litvinov offered his services as protection, as did the Krays and other up-and-coming gangsters. Litvinov was also offered a commission for introducing wealthy new players. One had to be careful of, careful of Litvinov. For example, after being a minder to Mark Sykes, an aristocrat who had hosted a gaming party in 1959, Litvinov offered to clean up the house. During his cleaning operation, Litvinov found a court transcript for which Sykes acted as a witness concerning a society scandal concerning a young heiress called Catherine Dowsett. Litvinov sold the transcript to the Daily Express, so it was advisable not to trust Litvinov, as he was always looking for ways to use people that he knew. The Crays began to run their own gambling venues in the East End. The first was in a billiard hall named the Regal in Bethnal Green. And then the Double R Club, Reg and Ron, at 145 Bow Road. The club opened on the 6th of May 1957, and its aim was to bring the West End nightlife into the East End. The press, In the press, the Crays described themselves as ex-boxers who did much charity work. The Crays, with the help of their associate, wheeler dealer Leslie Payne, started a pressurizer club owner called Stefan de Fay, who owned the nightclub Esmeralda's Farm at 50 Wilton Place, Knightsbridge. The Crays wanted some action in the west end of London, and had been guided there by Rackman, who did not want the Crays trying to muscle in on his property empire. He wanted to divert them to another scheme. Esmeralda's had enjoyed a period of success as a club for the bright young things in the early 1950s, but was not so much in fashion now as the decade had drawn to a close. But Esmeralda still attracted the glamorous Chelsea set. Each of the club's three floors had a different clientele. There was a lesbian club called the Sedder Club. On the next floor there was a fashionable bar and restaurant. And at the top there was a gambling casino. The Crays tried to get protection money from Stefan de Fay, and when he was slow paying, they forced him to hand the club over in the autumn of 1960. Litvinov's friend, Anthony Armstrong Jones, 
who lived around the corner from him in Plimlico, was a regular at Esmeralda's. He became engaged to Princess Margaret. Litvinov was also getting friendly with the craze, and in particular Ronnie, who called him Litz. Esmeralda's barn symbolised the craze's attempts to mix with high society. In the club it was said that if they laughed, everyone laughed. When somebody like Tony Armstrong Jones entered the club, he would be greeted by a frontman, Lord Effingham, a penniless aristocrat who was paid £10 a week to meet and greet celebrities visiting the club and to give the club an air of respectability. Leslie Payne was the astute Mr Fixit for the craze. He noted that aristocrats and successful gangsters have a great deal in common. Boredom, selfishness, ample money and free time, and a complete lack of interest in cautious bourgeois morality. Another character, the jazz musician Mez Mesro, perhaps better known as a cannabis dealer, remarked that it was funny how the top and bottom crust of society got together during the Prohibition era in the USA. Swanky clubs run by gangsters for the wealthy to party. A similar process seemed to be happening in 1960s London. Gambling at Esmeralda's bought a risk of being hurt. For example, there were occasions when Lucy and Freud had to go to a friend's house asking for thousands of pounds after losing heavily and being warned by the craze that if he didn't produce money by midday, they would cut his tongue out or cut his hand off. Freud didn't only fall out with the craze over gambling debts, he also had to produce money quickly for other gangsters such as Billy Hill and Albert Dimes. The craze were happy to use their violence to force businessmen to pay protection money or gamblers to cover their debts. A person would be called to the club, tried at a kangaroo court and sentenced to a punishment by the Cray twins. Ronnie was fond of slashing people across the buttocks so they would remember him whenever they sat down. They may have a finger cut off or have a dog attack them. When a barman at the Double R Club committed suicide, the twins hunted down the barman's Greek boyfriend. They imprisoned him naked in a cupboard for three days, returning every so often to beat him up or hose him down and then throw him some bread. Esmeralda's barn should have made the craze wealthy, but it started to go downhill fast. The staff began to leave, and the craze brought in their own staff and began their own style of management, which often led to bad debts, bounce checks and fighting in the club. Ronnie was sometimes involved in scuffles and brutal fights at the club. Afterwards he'd begin a circuit of the bar, still panting and sweating from the fight he just had. He spoke to all as if the extreme violence had been no more of a convenience than running out of beer at the bar. I'm terribly sorry about that, he repeated to each guest, slightly out of breath. It doesn't happen very often. <clears throat> Litvinov was always hoping to win money gambling. Litz was often said to have been Ronnie's lover, but this is unlikely, as they both preferred young boys. They would go cruising together looking for sexual conquests in each other's company. Ronnie, Kay, uh, Ronnie Cray preferred pretty heterosexual males. Litvinov and Ronnie Cray would go travelling the streets in a car looking for young men, with Litvinov doing the talking. Litvinov's tastes were for young boys, especially runaway Borstal boys. 
sex had become an obsession with Litvinov. He was a sexual predator, and he wanted to supply his friends with young men to have sex with. There were accusations that Litvinov was a procurer of children for VIP paedophiles. Given Litvinov's nature, this would not be surprising. Ronnie went cruising for boys with other people. There was a story that one night he picked up a youth at Piccadilly from the so-called meat rack of male prostitutes, rent boys, outside the Palace Hotel with Billy Howard. They broke into a house at Sloane Square. They made use of the male and strangled him to death in the process. Then they put his body in the boot of a car and disposed of it in Norfolk. It was not the only time that Billy Howard had been involved in sadomasochist acts which ended in death. He knew the box of Freddie Mills. He was having a homosexual relationship with the singer Michael Halliday. They were both bisexual. They picked up a girl and she, she died having sex with them during the 1959. The body was disposed of by Mills, who was suspected, along with a long list of others, for being the serial killer Jack the Stripper in the Hammersmith nude murders. Litvinov started to get too familiar with Ronnie Cray, and he would disrespect him in deliberate fashion. He started calling Ronnie Bootnose, referring to the shape of Ronnie's Cray's broken nose. Litvinov would call into Esmeralda's and say, Has old Bootnose been in today? Litvinov had also run up gambling debts of £3,000 at the club's gaming tables. One of the croupiers at Esmeralda's barn was an ex-jockey, Bobby Buckley, who was described as a pretty leprechaun of an Irish boy, with a slight stammer, but as hard as nails. In the late 1962, he could often be found at Litvinov's flat in Ashburn Place of Cromwell Road. Litvinov was about ten years older, and was something of a sugar daddy to Buckley, but Ronnie Cray was also interested in Buckley. Litvinov had been working as a greeter at Esmeralda's Barn, which was in the second division of clubs. The top gambling clubs, which include Crockford's, the Curzon Club, the Claremont, were all to be found in Mayfair. Esmeralda's was in Knightsbridge. It had always been more casual and informal, especially now that the craze had taken over. Esmeralda's should have been a cash cow for the craze, but it was turning into a financial disaster. The main reason that it would close in 1963 being that it got too rough. There were too many bounced checks. The elegant Mayfair clubs retained a hushed sophistication, while the barn could be raucous. For example, impromptu boxing matches being arranged on the dance floor, or the Cray twins fighting in the club. As Freddie Foreman was later to comment, Knightsbridge found it amusing at first but when the Chelsea set were a bit late honouring their checks, the pickaxe attacks on the Rolls-Royce would often tend to prevent future visits from the wealthy clientele. Litvinov was to suffer a violent attack. It was probably in 1962, although it's difficult with Litvinov to pin down dates. Litvinov now was living at 219A Kensington High Street. When there was a knock on the door, a punch in the face, and he was stripped naked and tied to a chair, and his head was heavily sh roughly shaved. He was strapped outside the balcony, three floors up, on a chair. Litvinov claims that he was woken as a CND demonstration made their way down Kensington High Street. 
he regained consciousness and pulled himself onto the balcony. The Crays were blamed as Ronnie Cray was not happy with Litvinov for a number of reasons. Others said it didn't sound like the Crays' MO, but they had been experimenting trying different methods of punishment so as to not be so obvious. Others said it sounded the sort of punishment that would have been given by the likes of South London gangsters. However, it was thought more likely to be Lucian Freud who was to blame, probably paying a criminal firm, not thought to be the craze, to teach Litvinov a lesson. One theory was that Litvinov had made a pass at the son of one of Freud's friends, and that was a final straw for Freud, as Litvinov had been getting on his nerves for some time. Lucian Freud had history. He was a sexual sadist. He would do dreadful things to anyone that he felt crossed him. He frequently settled disagreements by violent means and would pay people to inflict damage. I'm not sure now what the going rate is, but when I lived in London, it was a little as £500 would get a leg broken if you knew a local thug at your local pub. And Freud certainly knew the right people. Donald Camel thought that Freud had grown annoyed with Litvinov over threats to sue him over the portrait that had painted of him, calling him the Procurer. Although Freud hated Litvinov since he first met him, and he turned to his underworld context to sort things out. Litvinov tried to control things by turning it into a story that he could exaggerate at dinner parties and fictionalise on screen, such as in the form, film performance. An associate of the craze called Mickey Fawcett, he was the one that went and wrote the book Crazy Days, had just gone on a run after a battle in the East End, which resulted in shootings and mayhem that both the police and another gang gang wanted to question him about. Fawcett, who was close to the Crays, went to Esmeraldas to say he needed somewhere to hide quickly. Ronnie Cray said that he could stay at Litvinov's flat. He'd been taken off Litvinov by the Crays to offset gambling debts. To make matters worse for Litvinov, he had to hand over his boyfriend Bobby Buckley to Ronnie Cray. Certainly Litvinov had upset Ronnie Cray, possibly being rude about him or making passes at Buckley. But he was soon to suffer a classic Cray punishment, being slashed with a knife. Ronnie's favourite weapon being a knife, although he usually got other people to do a stabbing and slashing for him. Buckley would later say that Litvinov was one of Ronnie Cray's most important friends at the time. Litvinov made him laugh and seemed to know all the people that Ronnie wanted to know, be it dukes of the aristocracy to rent boys and street kids who would keep him informed of underworld rivals' activities. But Ronnie Cray was a psychopath whose mood could change in an instant. To those close to the craze, they could see that Litvinov was a loose cannon. He would do anything to be around the craze. It was said that he needed them more than they needed him. Litvinov would never have got into the craze in a circle because he could not keep a secret. He was so indiscreet. Another of Litvinov's lovers was Richard Ricky Levesley. He wrote a book about his tragic time with Litvinov. Levesley was a young hustler born in the East End. One of his tricks was stealing coats from cloakrooms and selling them, and handbag dipping at nightclubs. Litvinov met him one night at Water Street, Soho, as he was cruising in a mini car with others looking for sexual conquests. Levesley said that Litvinov was looking for a toy boy and was drawn in by him, 
At the time, Litvinov was 37 and Levesley 19. Levesley started dining in fine restaurants, wearing handmade suits, meeting famous people. Levesley said that he once bought a wrap of cocaine for Mick Jagger, who just said, thanks man, and took him without giving him the money. Levesley got a flat with Litvinov near Victoria Embankment. Litvinov had been betrayed and humiliated by, by uh, Bobby Buckley, choosing Ronnie Cray over him, and he was determined not to feel that way again, warning Levesley that it would be worse for him if he were to betray him, Litvinov. There was large sums of money in the flat that Litvinov had hidden in various places. When Levesley found a stash, he took it, and with a gun that he found with it. Nothing happened at first, but Litvinov knew he'd taken the money. Some time later, Litvinov attacked him and tied him to a chair and tortured him for two nights, which included cutting off all his hair with an old razor, seemingly copying what had happened to Litvinov when he was attacked and hung outside a balcony, and which was also depicted in the film performance. Then Levesley was given a pure dose of heroin, Leversley thought that the intention was to kill him, as he knew too much about Litvinov's wheeling and dealing, and he also kept a journal which could have been a threat to Litvinov and others. But Leversley wasn't dead. He spent four years in hospital, and after that care homes where he regained some of his faculties. A prosecution was not attempted as there was the fear of repercussions. Litvinov always maintained that it was a self-administered dose, However, Litvinov always seemed to feel some obligation towards him, as Levesley was brain damaged and in a wheelchair, and for a long time he was unable to speak. Levesley kept in touch with uh, Litvinov over the years, and Levesley finally died on a trip to Lourdes, or Lourdes in uh, 2011. Litvinov has suffered Ronnie Clay's violence on an October day in 1963, as he walked in Earl's court, a man strode up to him with a cutthroat razor concealed in his hand, which he jabbed into Litvinov's mouth and slashed both cheeks, before turning away saying, Ronnie says hello. The slash was directed to make it look as if he was smiling. Litvinov made it to David Camel's house, who was living nearby in Hogarth Place. They took him to hospital and got him stitched up. Camel said he looked terrible but he slept on his floor for a few days and seemed to will his wound to get better, and it healed up. Cameron was living with his partner, the top model Deborah Dixon, up there, and at their suggestion, Litvinov joined them in going to Paris, where he had cosmetic surgery. When Donald Cameron got to hear about the violence of the Cray twins, he was fascinated. He wanted to know more. He wanted to use their characters in a film project he was thinking about. Donald Camel had recently moved back to London and just as it was turning into swinging London. It was the driving force behind him making the film performance which draws all of these characters together in a series of podcasts. Camel was something of a renaissance man. He'd been living in Paris painting portraits for a living. Portraits that were highly thought of but he wanted to make films which he saw as important as, as the important new medium. For him, painting was anachronism. He was a good friend of Anita Pallenberg, who was working as a top model, but had been part of Warhol's factory scene in New York, and was shortly to meet up with the Rolling Stones. 
Another one of the Chelsea set who would become important in our story was a young art dealer called Robert Fraser, who opened a gallery at 69 Duke Street off Oxford Street. Guitarist of the Rolling Stones Brian Jones and his now partner Anita Pallenberg would have become part of the Chelsea scene, which seemed to be an ever-growing crowd of people, of which, of which Lipmanoff was one of the main characters. These people were influential trendsetters and making Sloane Square and Kings Road area the centre of swinging London. Litvinov was now living at the Peasantry at 152 Kings Road. This was a block of flats that was taken over by a, a sort of a, an artistic commune. Many influential artists worked there. It was a huge place. One of the artists was Nicky Kramer, who was something of a hanger-on to those in the in-crowd at the time. He was suspected of telling the News of the World newspaper that the Rolling Stones were at a drug party in 1967 and Litvinov and John Binden took it upon themselves to discover the truth and beat him senseless before deciding that he was not the cause of the information. The Crays continued their business opportunities in Soho by taking over the Hideaway Club at Gerrard Street. The owner of the club was Hugh McCowan, who had offered the Crays a stake in the club, but changed his mind a couple of days later. Ronnie Cray was furious at this disrespect shown, and he took the club over by intimidation and a failed court case from McEwen. The Crays had nobbled the witnesses for the court case. It seemed that the Crays could do whatever they wanted. The Crays now being all powerful, for reasons which we will examine in a later episode. The Crays' place in the mid-1960s pop culture was enhanced when they were included in David Bailey's box of pinups. This was a loose black and white portraits, now this was a, a box of loose black and white portraits of 36 celebrities that lived in Britain at the time. In fact a box sold recently for almost £9,000 at auction. The craze probably felt untouchable at this time, although things were starting to unravel, probably as a result of their untouchability. They had friends in high places such as the bisexual Lord Boothby that we've talked about, who was close to Ronnie Cray and was blackmailed, uh, Ronnie Cray, who blackmailed Boothby over his love of young boys and other matters. In his biography, Recollections of a Rebel, Boothby makes no reference to his well-known connection with the Crays. He only wanted the public to see the one side of him, the respectable side. On the 6th of June 1967, Reggie's 23-year-old wife Frances committed suicide, or possibly was murdered by a forced overdose to make it look like suicide. The craze then started a murder spree. Bodies started being taken away by Freddie Foreman, Jerry Callahan, and Alfie Gerrard, the little gang known as the Gangsters Undertakers. Ronnie started his kill list. He even put the firm's business mastermind, Leslie Payne, on the list. It's not known how many murders the Cray gang were responsible for, but by the 28th of October 1967, there were three confirmed in the previous 19 months. Mitchell, Cornell and McVitie. Another person on the list, as discussed in the previous podcast, was Jimmy Evans. Scotland Yard's gangbuster Nipper Reed had broken up South London gang of the Richardsons and he was trying to put a case against the Crays. 
Reed was anxious to talk to Litvinov as he'd come to hear about his gambling debts and his mouth-cutting by the craze. But Litvinov refused to cooperate. But Litvinov was to start work on the film performance in 1968. He was dialogue, a dialogue coach and technical advisor. And he's the person credited with giving the movie its authentic air of criminality and mayhem. Litvinov providing the link between the worlds of crime in Bohemia, providing much of the inspiration to Donald Camel to make the film. Litvinov was told that he could write a novel of the film, but never seemed to be able to commit anything to paper, and a writer named William Hughes was used instead to write the novel. Apart from working on the script, set dressings and locations, Litvinov recruited some of the actors. For example, John Binden, who we'd known for a couple of years, and he's going to be the subject of next week's podcast. During the shooting of the film, Litvinov was said to find the posturing of the younger actors trying. Jagger, Pallenberg and Camel all started to annoy him. Litvinov said, Oh man, I can't stand these people in their frozen attitudes of hip. Although he seemed to have close relationships with all of them. During the early stages of filming, Litvinov floated the idea to the, that the craze could be brought in as consultants to the film. But this idea collapsed following their arrest on the 8th of May 1968. Nipper Reed had arrested the Cray gang. They knew that the police were closing in on them, and Reed had heard rumours that they wanted to go out in a blaze of glory. There were plans to attack certain police stations they did not like, at Lehman Street and Bethnal Green. They wanted to use machine guns and hand grenades. Of the gang arrested, only Albert Donahue would plead guilty, and this was because the twins informed him that he was going to take the blame for the Mitchell murder, despite only being the driver. Ronnie and Reggie were trying to get others to take the fall for them. Donahoe decided that he would assist the prosecution instead, and be given a token two-year sentence as an accessory for murder. The, the hidden punishment for him being that he would always be known as a grass, an informer. In 19, August 1968, Litvinov was badly beaten up again by persons unknown. He was taken to a block of flats, beaten up, covered by a sheet and kept there for a weekend, being beaten again whenever his attackers returned. It was thought also that he had been tired and feathered. Such punishment is usually associated when somebody has been double-crossed. It's thought that this punishment was ordered by the craze from prison. Johnny Shannon, who played the role of Harry Flowers in the film, Harry Flowers being the, the character based on Ronnie Cray, thought that it may, might be that the Cray twins had given Litvinov some ideas for the film and they felt they should have received some of the consultancy fee. Several others said that they had heard that the Crays were responsible because they were not happy with so much of their world being put onto film. Although they were in prison, they could still order people to carry out their instructions. Another possible reason for the beating was that Litvinov had been running a gambling club for the Crays in 1967 and had been filtering off money. Litvinov thought that the Crays had put out a contract on him after they had been arrested and he was very, very wary of them. When the film had been completed, Litvinov seemed to be in fear of his life and needed to leave London to a secret address. He moved to West Wales, to Landui Breffy, near a riverside cottage. 
There was a rumour that Litvinov was trying to write a book during his spell in Wales, although he argued there was always too many ways to avoid writing a book. Friends came to visit. These included Ricky Levesley in his wheelchair. Locals remembered Daimlers, Jaguars, Rolls Royces all squeezing down the narrow country lanes towards the cottage. John and Yoko, Jimi Hendrix, the Rolling Stones were all said to have called, on, called by. One story being that when he called into his local shop in the village, Litvinov told some teenagers that Cliff Richard was in the car outside. They went clamouring out to see if it was true. They were rather disappointed to find just Jagger. On sunny days, Litvinov would put on stereo speakers on the trees outside and blast music across the field while his guests skinny-dipped in the river. Lots of drugs were consumed. Litvinov was always fond of cannabis, but got into LSD whilst at the cottage. There was a story that a policeman came to visit the cottage regarding Litvinov's dog worrying sheep. The policeman had been dosed with an acid tab. The village was famous for a drug raid after an LSD drugs factory was based in the town, Operation Julie, some years later in 1977. I wonder if there was any connection. Although it was bearable in the summer, the long, lonely, rainy winters were a trial. Litvinov occasionally went back to London or another excursion such as in September 1970 going to the first Glastonbury festival. In late 1970 Litvinov was telling friends that his book was coming together but then he was tipped off by a local friend that the policeman had been seen sitting in a car watching the cottage. Litvinov took off and was never seen in the area again. Had the police worked out that their colleagues had been given LSD? Back in London, spending time with relatives in Wildstone, Litvinov was keeping a low profile, planning what to do next. London was changing fast. The hippie dream was turning into the bad trip. Litvinov went to stay with down-to-earth people, <clears throat> aristocrat hippie-type friends, enormous Gores, who owned a country house in Ostrostry in Shropshire called Brogwinton Hall. The Ormsby Gore were a non-conventional family, but the fifth Baron Harlock was the UK ambassador to the USA under the Macmillan government. The family had a tragic history. The mother of the young children of the Baron died in a car crash in 1967. In 1985, the fifth Baron died in a car crash. The eldest son, Julian, had shot himself in 1974. In their daughter... Alice Ormsby Gore, who was something of a wild child, was Eric Clapton's girlfriend when aged, aged 16 in 1968, he introduced her to the joys of heroin. Clapton got clean, but Alice did not, and she died of an overdose in a Bournemouth bed sit in 1995. It was Alice's younger brother Francis who put up for Litvinoff, and he knew him through his older brother Julian. The young Harlick's head had been impressed by it as Litvinoff had known the craze and Mick Jagger and Marianne Faithful when he was involved with the film performance. Litvinoff was staying with the Harlick's and he worked on the farm as a farmhand. Then in March 1971, Litvinoff took off to Australia, to Sydney, where he got involved in a project called the Yellow House, a sort of an artistic commune getting involved in the avant-garde scene. He joked that he had swapped the old West Wales for the New South Wales, and from isolation and rain to 
a sun-drenched city to explore. Litvinov took an advance to write a screenplay for a movie about Anthony Armstrong Jones called Tony, but he never actually got round to finishing it. He returned to the UK homeless and penniless, drifting and lacking purpose. Fortunately for him, his friend Christopher Gibbs had come into some money and purchased uh, Davington Priory in Kent. So Litvinov divided his time between the Priory and the home of the Ormsby Gores. But Litvinov, Litvinov was finding life difficult. He'd long ago traded orthodox religions such as Judaism for an idiosyncratic belief system of his own devising which titillated art, love and music. But he was losing interest in most things. His world was changing fast. Slum clearances saddened him. The East End was changing beyond recognition. The Jewish East End, which he had known so well, was becoming a multi-national melting pot, which he did not recognise as from his past. Soho was changing just as much as Spitalfields. A photographer put on an exhibition at the Whitechapel Gallery in 1972 about the end of the Jewish quarter in the East End. The old Jewish community was in terminal decline. Friends remembered him talking about suicide. Joking, well how would you do it? Litvinov's 50th birthday was looming and he had told his family that he did not want to be 50. He did not want to be an altar knocker, which translates to an old buffer. Litvinov killed himself with an overdose of sleeping pills two days after he told friends that he was going away on a long journey and he might not be coming back. Litvinov killed himself at Davington Priory, the home of his long-suffering friend Christopher Gibbs who found a note some three months later hidden away in one of Litvinov's shirt pockets. Sandy Lieberson, who was a film producer for performance, said that a lot of people committed suicide in the 1960s and 70s, usually through drugs. I think it was just part of the era. Camel committed suicide in 1996 with a gunshot to his head, just as Turner died in the film performance. Marianne Faithful commented, the reason anybody commits suicide is because they could no longer bear living. But that feeling will pass. I tried to commit suicide, but I never managed it, and I'm glad that I didn't. Faithful also said that Litvinov made enemies because he was fearless. Not just in the gangster world, but he made enemies of Lucian Freud and Mick Jagger as well. He would say what he thought. He didn't care about their egos, which is fatal for people like them. The funeral was held at Raynham Cemetery on the 13th of April 1975. Two weeks after Litvinov's death, Christopher Gibbs received a visitor at Davington Priory. A young man asked if Mr Gibbs was in. Gibbs replied, well I'm Mr Gibbs. But the visitor said, no you're not, he's a small bloke with a big nose. He told me to come round this afternoon and we'll have some tea and listen to some music. Gibbs discussed it with his friends later. They came to the conclusion that Litvinov had done it on purpose to cause an effect. Gibbs had always offered Litvinov support despite being treated badly by him. Litvinov would steal and give away his possessions and of course it's rather rude to commit suicide as a guest in someone's house. By the mid-1980s there were rumours of a journal produced by Litvinov called Litvinov's Book which had disclosed what actually happened in the 1960s in London which caused Rumours of his death as murder of the people thought that they were about to expose them. 
This caused a short film to be produced called The Cardinal and the Corpse, which can be viewed on YouTube. Well, as I said, a bit of a ramble this week, but I hope you enjoyed listening to what I've, uh, to which I thank you. Next week, we shall consider the life of John Bindon, a South London hard man and a gangster who became a film actor and was thought to have been the lover of Queen, uh, the Queen's sister, Princess Margaret. Anyhow, until next time, I will thank you very much for listening. Uh, thank you, Damselfly, for providing the music, and I'll say goodbye. goodbye.